Well, good morning. Great to be back at Meadowcroft. I invite you, if you would, please to take a Bible and turn to Psalm 67. I had forgotten that Meadowcroft spends the summers in the Psalms, and so in God's providence, we end the summer on Psalm 67. We will read verses 1 through 7, the entirety of the psalm, and then enter into a brief prayer before we study this passage together. Let's read, listen carefully as I read now the Word of God from Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Let us pray. There are thousands of reasons in our own mind, in our own hearts, oh God in heaven, why these next few moments could be explained away, could be dismissed, could be ignored. And yet, O God, you have given us your word, you have given us your spirit, and we need to hear from you afresh today. So I pray that wherever we may be resisting your will, that you would tenderize our hearts wherever we need encouragement. Would you build us up? And O God, wherever our hearts need a massive recalibration, to be reinfused with the hope that you alone bring because you are the faithful God of your people. I pray that this congregation would be fed, nourished, strengthened, and equipped for every good work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are varying schools of parenting. Some parents are known to be what we might describe as helicopter parents. They are more recently described as snowplow parents. Then there's the other side of parenting that is known perhaps to many of you as free-range parenting. That's where you let your children just do whatever they want. I remember some years ago a particular couple saying to us, that they were committed that they would never, ever say no to their child. That's a version of free-range parenting. I am convinced that both squirrels and rabbits come from the free-range school of parenting. How many squirrels and rabbits do you see look both ways before they cross the street? I was driving down the road just a few weeks ago and saw out of the corner of my eye a rabbit on the side of the road, a young rabbit, 
There was a car in front of me and there was a car behind me. And as I looked at this rabbit just ahead of me, I saw him dart literally right in front of the car in front of me. What was to be his sure demise, I saw and heard the thump. And as I saw that rabbit spit out the backside of that car, it began rolling and then just lay limply. And yet suddenly, boom, it sprung to its feet again. Just in time to make me swerve to try to avoid him, I straddled that rabbit, and I saw out of my rearview mirror that rabbit run right into the front right tire of the car behind me, or so I thought. He sprung just at the split second to the other side of the road, certainly jarred, certainly rattled, but still alive. Now, many of you this morning feel like that rabbit. As you think about what has taken place in the last 18 months plus around the world in our own nation as we've had to face what in our lifetime is really our first pandemic, we have seen in our own country all sorts of political machinations that, has divide, that have divided us and our lifetimes arguably in unprecedented ways. And as we look to the right and as we look to the left, everywhere we look, it is chaotic. And as we think about those in the political sphere against whom we oppose, we see them not as principled interlocutors. No, they are absolutely categorical enemies. And then when it comes to COVID, you can probably divide the nation between those who think that Fauci is the most brilliant man on the face of the earth or an absolute buffoon. Not going to answer that question this morning. When we come to the text that we're addressing this morning, the Israelites felt like that rabbit. They had every reason, like you, to panic. Their political opponents were not principled interlocutors. They were categorical enemies. They actually knew what real cancel culture was like because their enemies didn't want to just badmouth them on social media. They wanted their necks. They, too, looked to the right and to the left, and they saw chaos all about them. They also looked in the mirror, and they saw chaos within them. If we're honest, so do we. We as the people of God continue to wage war with sin and temptation and the, the pressures from without and indeed the pressures from within. We won't take time to read the whole thing, but I want you to understand the history of the people of God that is the backdrop for Psalm 67. Just look with me briefly at Psalm 78, which recounts 
and the people of God's response to the kindness of God. I'll only read verses 9 through 20 of Psalm 78. The Ephraimites, armed with a bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders. In the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan, he divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud, and all the night with a fiery light, he split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Yet they sinned still more against him. Rebelling against the Most High in the desert, they tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that the water gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? Psalm 78 continues, God blesses, the people rebel. God works wonders, the people rebel. The stubbornness from within is worse than the oppression from without. And in that context, we come to Psalm 67. Psalm 67 calls the people of God to see things in a new way, in new light, and in fact, in divine light. Whether you feel like that rabbit this morning or not, whether you feel like your enemies politically, whether you see the sin in your own heart is overwhelming, we come to a text in Psalm 67 that offers us a light into the divine purposes of God on the stage of history. My prayer for you this morning then is that you will cast your eyes towards him and see what you would not otherwise see. Psalm 67, verse 1. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. Folks, that's crazy. How dare we ask the God of heaven who has blessed, 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 and we've rebelled, rebelled, rebelled. How dare we ask him to bless us? To make his face shine upon us. This is arguably an illegitimate, even irreverent request. How dare we ask the thrice holy God of heaven to look down and smile upon a rebellious people like you and me? How dare we ask? God, such a thing. It's a gutsy prayer, but you know what else it is? It's a godly prayer. This psalm calls us to pray boldly. You know why the psalmist prays this way? Because <laughs> God told his people to. Many of you are familiar with this language. It should remind you of Numbers chapter 6. If it doesn't, it will now. Look back at Numbers chapter 6. This is what we call the Aaronic blessing. Number six. Verse 24. The Lord bless you and keep you. 
The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. You know where that language came from? Look back in verse 22. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel, you shall, you shall say to them, dear ones, this language in Psalm 67 is God's words of prayer for his people to him. He calls us as a rebellious lot to look to him and cry out, not only for his forgiveness, but for his smile. Imagine that. Part of the task of the recalibration of our hearts is to recognize our thoughts are not as God's thoughts. His ways are not like our ways, as Jeff said earlier in the service. God delights. He delights in forgiving us. The psalm then leads out with this prayer. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Have you asked God to do that for you? Have you really asked not just that you could edge by and just kind of squeak into the door of heaven? Have you asked the almighty God of heaven, the one who has created all things from nothing, the one who has saved his people from his sin and loved doing it because he loves you, have you asked him to bless you? See, it is necessary for the recalibration of our hearts to see things as we ought, to pray boldly. You will never pray better than when you pray God's words back to him. This psalm calls us to ask God to smile. Pray boldly. Dear ones, nothing exposes our right thinking, our spiritual vitality, than what we pray. Pray boldly. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Verse 2, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. I want to talk just briefly for a moment about that phrase, saving power among all the nations. The psalmist knows something of this God. He knows that he is the almighty God, the one who has made all things, the creator of heaven and earth, and he also knows that this God can do whatever he wants to do. This God is almighty, and what is most striking from Genesis to Revelation is that the one who has absolute authority to cancel you, talk about cancel culture, the one who has absolute authority to obliterate you, to condemn you, that one says, my power is a saving power. My arm is strong to save. The 
The ironic blessing was not a mere wish list. The prayer for the smile of God goes to the God who is almighty, and this is the God who smiles on you. He delights to extend his mercy to you, his grace, his forgiveness. The God who has the right to cancel you has instead canceled your sin. He is the one who exercises his power savingly. (laughs) The psalmist here calls us then not only to pray boldly, but to trust fully. Trust fully in the saving, not only power of God, but purpose of God. Verse 2 also tells us, again, verse 2 at the beginning, that your way may be known on the earth. (laughs) This is a striking thing. Don't miss this. Many of us treat the the gift of salvation somewhat glibly and and flippantly. We, We take it for granted. And one of the ways we do is we treat the, 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 the living waters of God as though they are poured into a cul-de-sac where the water is just poured in, but it doesn't go out. You know what happens when you pour water into a pool that stagnates? It over time starts to smell. Some of us stink. And part of the reason we smell so bad is that we have treated the grace of God as though it's our own private possession. Salvation is, as this text tells us, it is for the nations. That grace that comes to us is also to come through us. The gospel does not come to us as it were into a cul-de-sac. We are brought onto the freeway in which we are to be on the move as those who are on the divine errand of mercy delivering the gospel to the nations by our lives, by our words, by our decisions, by our priorities, by the way in which we address COVID. This text calls us to trust in the saving power of God. I had a blessing this last spring of of reading a book called The Book of Giving by Pierce Hibbs. If you've not started reading Pierce, do. He's publishing a book about every six months right now. He's a machine. This, in my mind so far, in fact, I just got another manuscript in my inbox, so it may not any longer be true, but the book that I just read this past spring was the best of his yet, called The Book of Giving, and it's not a philanthropy book. It's a book that actually, well, it might bear upon your philanthropy, consider Westminster Theological Seminary. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, um, It's not a book about philanthropy. It's a book about how in salvation, when we're brought into union with the triune God, that we enter into fellowship with him. And he describes the fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit 
as a fellowship of self-giving. Think about how God the Father gives to God the Son. God the Son gives to the Spirit. The Spirit gives to the Son. The Spirit gives to the Father. There's a perfect and perpetual self-giving. It's not a taking relationship. It's a giving relationship. It is no wonder then that the character of the gospel is a character of generosity. That we are not to merely receive the good news, but in our celebration of it, we are to exude the good news. We've been brought into the circle of the giving God. Grace calls us to generosity of spirit. The implications of that, of course, for the people of God and how we relate to one another, how we relate to one another in our communities, how we relate to one another in the workplace, how we relate to Aunt Matilda. All of that is shaped by the giving God, giving himself to us, who delights to smile on his people and for us to understand that we are to trust his saving purposes personally and to give of his saving purposes generously we're to pray boldly and to trust fully well now we move to what is really the pinnacle of this psalm those of you who know hebrew poetry and surely through your studies in the last summers through the psalter you've gotten a picture of how some psalms are are in what we describe as a form of chiasm where the high point of the psalm is actually right in the middle this psalm is just like that the main point of this psalm you find at the very center point in verse 4 what is interestingly interesting about this psalm is that that high point is actually bracketed by a refrain on the front side and the back that is reiterating the priority of this particular feature. Read verses 3 through 5 with me. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. At this stunning crescendo, having prayed boldly that God would smile upon us and then trusted fully in his saving power, we recognize that the whole, don't miss this, the whole purpose for the history of the world is laid on display for us here that all the nations would sing the song of salvation. That all the nations may know that all the peoples would sing for joy, would be glad. Let me read verses 3 through 5 again with a slightly different emphasis. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you let the nations be glad and sing for joy for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth let the peoples praise you O god let all the peoples praise you 
Who's at the center here, folks? It is no wonder in the crescendo of this psalm we see on display the God who is worthy of our praise. But this God who is worthy of our praise shows himself not only as the Almighty One with the right and power and authority to condemn, but a God who delights to save his people. Do you this morning trust him fully for your salvation and in such a way that you are not a cul-de-sac, but a channel of grace? through whom the living waters flow. Well, if that opening prayer was not absurd enough, we arguably reach the pinnacle of of absurdity here in the second portion of verse 4. Look at this. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Well, it seemed risky, of course, to ask God for his smile but for his equity? (laughs) Do we really want the justice of God? Yeah, we want it for someone else. But do we want justice for ourselves? And yet the psalmist, at the pinnacle of this psalm, describes the saving God as operating his salvation according to justice and according to equity. How can that possibly be? Well, dear ones, this is the very question that the Apostle Paul raised in Romans chapter 3. How can God be holy and forgive scum like us? That's a paraphrase. How can God remain holy and forgive sin? But as we think about it, isn't it true? That as we look forward to that day, the promise of Scripture lays before us that there will be a a time in which all pain, all suffering, all tears, all sadness, all evil, all corruption, all of it will be made right. Can you imagine? You can't even do that in your own life. The God of heaven says, I'm going to do that for all the nations. And for my people... I will not only be just, but I will be justifier. This is what Paul argues in Romans 3, that in Christ, God shows himself both as just and justifier of the wicked. How so? Because in his son, your sin is born. And his righteousness becomes his gift to you. You see, the saving arm of God is given in the tender hand of his mercy. Whereby you are not only forgiven, you are forgiven righteously. This is why 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and merciful to forgive. No, that's not what it says. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see that in the forgiveness of your sin is not God turning a blind eye from your sin or the sin of the peoples that he will draw to himself from the nations. It is that in Jesus, God is satisfied. He's not only satisfied, 
as he smiles on Christ and his obedient work and his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, as he intercedes for us, he sees us in the righteous Christ. Did you know that in the eyes of God, your forgiveness is not closing his eyes to your sin it is actually seeing your sin in full and seeing jesus's work on your behalf as overwhelming it entirely god be praised we're called to pray boldly we're called to trust fully and here in this psalm as it reaches its crescendo, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let them experience the equity of your forgiveness, your saving power. We are called to desire rightly. Wanting what God wants. What do you want this morning? If your heart was exposed here on these screens and in writing was put on those screens the things that you live for, the things that you long for, what would it say? Part of the reason that we as the people of God now in the 21st century in the political chaos of our nation, of the economic and economic and moral chaos of our world, part of the reason that the people of God are not at peace is because we don't want what God wants. As we're called here in this psalm to desire rightly, there is a profound spiritually wrought recalibration of our hearts that as we have our longings become the longings of God, we will find that this life and its momentary affliction fades in its significance. We won't care so much about masks we won't care so much about the plagues and difficulties that we face. We will actually discover that as we pray boldly, trust fully, and desire rightly, there is a profound change internally that enables us to see ourselves as God sees us. And what is his purpose? Did you ever think about the fact that your suffering may be the very instrument that God is using for the saving of the nations? This is the very argument that Peter uses in 2 Peter chapter 3. Your suffering in this place is one of the tools that God is using for saving others in another place. You endure now because God's purposes transcend yours. And guess what? Those plans are good they're for the saving of the nations that they may be glad and sing for joy the climax of this psalm should be the deepest longing of our hearts oh god help us to want what you want to long for that which you long for, to be about your purposes on that divine errand of mercy that as we pray boldly and trust fully that we will desire rightly what you desire. For what does your heart burn this morning? 
Do you want the demise of your political opponent? Do you want your enemy canceled or converted? The answer to that question will shape the way you pray, the way you think, the way you live, and the way that you love. This psalm makes a tremendous shift in verses 6 and 7. The verb construction in all the prior verses, verses 1 through 5, is a particular tone in the Hebrew language of, of pleading, of asking. We, we move in verses 6 and 7 to a very different style. Note the language. It's no longer let, it's no longer may, it is now these words. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. Repeated in verse 7, God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. The psalmist uses a very familiar concept to an agrarian culture dependent upon the crops yielding their produce. And we have seen generation after generation after generation that the increase comes forth and feeds the people of the earth. The psalmist uses that image to shift from prayer to certainty. Note note the shift here. As we pray these things, we discover that what we're praying, God is actually going to do. What we're doing is we're aligning our hearts with the fact that God will bless us. And he will bless the nations of the earth that fear him. Many of us sadly think of our faith a bit like our IRAs. We put all of our deposit in now and have to wait to the future to get any bank. That's not the way our faith is to work. It's not a deposit now only for a future day. It's a deposit now for now. If your faith is not relevant now, it is relevant never. The point that the psalmist is wanting us to get is as we have our prayers centered on God's desires and purposes, we can be assured that just as we have prayed God's words back to him, God cannot not do what he says he's going to do. That is terrible grammar, but it's great theology. God can only do what he says he will do. He cannot not do that. Do you realize that if you are a child of God, you cannot not be forgiven? You cannot not receive his mercy. You cannot not receive his grace. And what this psalm is calling us to do is to live according to what is true now. Because the Lord will bless us. He can do nothing less. Hebrews puts it this way, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This morning, are you 
praying boldly, trusting fully, desiring righteously? And are you resting securely in the promises of God? This psalm, yes, it calls us to pray, but the answer is already yes. It can be none other, for in Jesus we find all the promises of God. Yes and amen. What if your current struggles, your current misery was part of God's purpose in causing the nations to sing? What if the delay in the return of Christ and the suffering that that brings about in your life was viewed through the lenses of this psalm to pray boldly, to trust fully, to desire rightly, and rest securely that the nations might sing? What if your passion for comfort was replaced by a zeal for the nations? Charles Plumer, one of the great pilgrims of the faith, one of the great Puritan fathers, writes this about God's blessing. Without God's blessing, he says, we are nothing. Without his love, we die. But without a sense of it, we wither. Dear ones, this psalm is calling us from a place of withering to a place of bounty, of enjoying the smile of God upon his people, whereby as a recipient of his grace, we become about the great purpose of God on the stage of history that is this, let the nations be glad and sing for joy for you, O God. Judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let's close. Oh God, we are so easily swept away into the worldly longings that wage war with your purposes in our hearts. I pray, oh God, that those here at Meadowcroft Church would pray boldly, would trust your strong, saving arm fully. They would desire what you desire, desire rightly, and in it all, rest securely. For you, O oh God, will bless us. Praise be to your name.